0: Just do an episode every single week, regardless of rain, hail, or shine. Your laptop breaks, your Wi Fi is down, your guest cancels last minute. My Sunday episode is still going up regardless.
1: Colin Campbell is a Scottish podcast host who chases peak performance in both his career and in fitness.
0: I'd ended the relationship and my self-talk afterwards was pretty brutal. You're such a bad guy, you've hurt somebody, this is terrible. You're incompatible with people because of how hardworking you are, how driven you are. And I started to beat myself up quite a lot. Now I've not levelled it off to an extent where I've lost my edge. I'm much more compassionate with myself i just bought a property in the january i've moved job in the march i've been made redundant in the may the only thing that made me feel better was i'm gonna do something about it i can control how i look how i train how i eat my activity my sleep my recovery i'm not going soft i'm not letting myself wallow in self-pity and just coast along until the job comes along i'm gonna go and get it
1: the Extrospective podcast is sponsored by runner which is the first of its kind number one rated fully automated running coaching service whether you're training for your first marathon a faster 10k time or simply couch to 5k you'll be guided by an expert team including olympic marathon runner steph davis download runner spelt r-u-n-n-a today from the app store and take your running to the next level with code zach you'll be able to get your first two weeks free and see what all the hype is about that's zach z-a-k for your first two weeks free colin campbell welcome to the podcast how are you doing?
0: Zach I'm really good thank you very much for having me I'm excited for for this one and we're we're using a new toy which is uh obviously not interesting for people behind the scenes but for people that are into podcasts it's uh it's interesting for us to be on a, a different platform and getting to speak uh, all the way across the UK.
1: Yeah I thought it was uh, it was rubbish to continue using Google Meets and my own dodgy uh, recording software on my end so we're trying out this kind of better software hopefully for a better quality for the listeners and a better experience for us as we're recording it we connected a little bit of time ago through mutual friend david previous guest and and fellow podcasters but it wasn't until recently doing my research for this podcast i kind of connected the dots you you share the same name as dr colin t campbell who's like a world-renowned epidemiological doctor Uh, have you heard of the china study or have you heard of of colin campbell
0: i know some other famous colin campbells but not this one so tell me tell me about this one.
1: Oh well i, I actually have the book which is quite funny for the viewers right now you can see uh t dot colin campbell obviously the the middle name at the beginning yeah it's, it's kind of random I, i've i've been um eating a plant-based diet for like seven years and his work was like one of the motivating factors originally so it's quite funny you have the same middle name as well but <laughs> thought i'd just randomly raise that as a point and I'll talk to you a little bit more after the the podcast, maybe. Yeah, outstanding. What, what's,
0: what, what's he written about then? He primarily writes about plant based veganism, like the, the
1: gut, the health. What what are what are his um, areas? Yeah, I think Colin Campbell is the his main work was the China study, and it was basically comparing different modes of eating, particularly in China, compared to Western diets, and then tracking all cause mortality like outcomes for diabetes, outcomes for bone fractures and and uh, heart disease and things like this uh, and there's plenty of crazy graphs in there I've not really read it enough but supposedly it was a big comprehensive nutrition study so yeah quite quite well known but
0: fantastic yeah well yeah. The, the other Colin Campbell that I'm most aware of is the like the kind of the Campbell clan were like like one of the leading clans in Scotland like in the in the in the in the in the, in the, in the centuries previous and he was well known as being like Quite merciless and uh, quite uh, relentless in terms of his conquest of different tribes, uh, different clans, in particular the McDonalds, where they massacred them on a number of occasions. He was a bit of a, a bit of a, a domineering figure. So there's elements of his personality in mind, maybe, but I think I'm, a, I think I'm a little <laughs> bit more lenient than, uh, than, than Colin Campbell Senior.
1: I hopefully really a bit softer than that. Um, I don't know. Before we begin, thanks so much for taking the time uh, to come here, come on here. Um, judging by our Instagram stories your lifestyle seems super jam-packed traveling for work on the go nutrition gym sessions and of course your very own uh, successful podcast which at the time of release I think will hit its three-year anniversary so before we start congratulations congratulations on that that's, that's a lot of perseverance
0: it is indeed that yeah that on the on the 1st of April that'll be three years so depending when this one goes out that'll be um that'll be the third anniversary and well over 100 and I think I think we'll be coming up for about 180 episodes at the time of release just based on what I've got banked um which will be which will be really cool and a nice feeling because I think as a as a podcast host yourself you'll know how relentless the process is and how challenging it can be to just keep going and if you look at some of the stats around podcasts the numbers that fall off after seven or eight episodes the number that fall off the 21 episodes and by just showing up and of course with a little bit of quality you can really put yourself in the in the upper echelons of, of podcasts with consistency with quality with a bit of relentless work ethic and of course improving as you as you go by things like the software that we're using by the questions that we ask the research that we do the type of guests that we get on and, and actually understanding what the listener really wants after a little while as well because you'll start to understand quite quickly which episodes perform best and that's not just in terms of like download numbers but it's also in terms of like retention as well so you can see within your episodes how many people are listening so you might for example have a really sensationalist guest and it get let's say for argument's sake a thousand a thousand downloads but if people have only listened for 10 minutes it's not really the same as if you have somebody on that is a bit more insightful a bit more impactful and people listen for the full hour and it only has 500 downloads you might get lost in those numbers then think oh it's got half the downloads but actually you've had much more listen time much more engagement probably much more positive impact and ultimately i think as a podcast host you can probably nod your head and agree that it's very much about the impact rather than just the the numbers and the vanity metrics
1: absolutely as a famous man once said like saint cash uh and not just in terms of the monetary value but also the the value exchange when someone is engaging with a podcast i think yeah it's better to have a following of people who genuinely care and and receive value from the podcast rather than just hitting the you know shooting high and hoping that your random episode will go viral i know you mentioned that on a recent solo q a that you did about you know not just getting controversial um, guests on for that purpose
0: it's really easy to optimize for controversies that like you could find and, and a lot of the guy the more controversial guys will happily do your podcast versus some of the really high value guys that are harder to get on and harder to have conversations with because their diary is busier and they're actually working on something being more impactful. Whereas the more controversial guys, they're quite happy to show up and do podcast after podcast after podcast, even regardless of size sometimes because they know they'll get one clip from it where they can bang it out into the world and get the get the notoriety off the back of it
1: one of the things that and I, and I hope we'll delve into some of those topics a little bit later on everything that you've discussed there with the relentlessness of the podcast and and the journey that you've been on but before we go into that for the listeners at home I know I know we haven't actually given you the opportunity to do so how so how would you identify today
0: yeah so I'm a I'm a 30 year old uh boy born in glasgow i live in a place called bears den just outside glasgow i've lived there all my life school went to university university of glasgow and studied politics i've got a, a master's in politics which given some of the conversations you and i have had in the in the dms on instagram coming up for this one you, you'll know that i am quite um politically aware maybe not politically aligned and after university I've very much become what I would term an office athlete and that is somebody that looks to excel within the domains that they apply themselves and those domains have been my career and they've been with my physical fitness and my appearance as well so optimizing for peak performance in both of those and alongside that and the main reason that we're having this chat is that I've been creating content online since 2018 um albeit I wish that I'd started creating sooner. That is still quite a long time to have been in the game with Instagram. And the podcast started, as you as you well said, just under three years ago now on the 1st of April 2020. And that came after years and years and years of creating on Instagram and growing a reasonably good audience on there from like a fitness and a mindset perspective. And the podcast started out pretty much in that vein, but has now pivoted to a kind of more broader self-development theme rather than just fitness and, and what goes on inside your head.
1: I think the words you say there you know you wish you'd started sooner i think that's what most people would say when they start any creative endeavor or any project i think if that's a, a message to anyone it's just get cracking if you haven't already because you've got time but as long as you start today then then you can be set on track uh it doesn't surprise me that when i asked you how you identified you didn't start off with your gender pronouns and potentially we'll uh, talk about that sort of topic a little bit later on um but as always I feel my passion for psychology and understanding someone's character sort of building the picture I'm sure you've heard this spiel from hosts before Um, but to understand your recent endeavors let's turn back the pages what were you like as a child Colin?
0: As a child I was pretty quiet pretty studious um, albeit not like massively academic but like relatively hard working because it was it was placed a lot of value on that within my within my family Mum and dad very much wanted me to do well in school to be in the in the top set for maths and english or whatever else you were at at, at primary school i was Pretty sporty, but not particularly talented in any shape or form. I actually come from a, a very rich footballing heritage. My my grandpa played for for Rangers Football Club and is one of the top ever goal scorers for them. But the talent did not make its way through my mum to me, and uh, I wasn't particularly good at football at all. And my main sport growing up was actually rugby, and it was rugby that introduced me to the gym as well at the age of fifteen, where we started doing strength conditioning. So, as a kid, um not massively confident I think a lot of people now that see me online think I'm very confident very self-assured very to a point sometimes um like, like almost too self-assured in 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 the domains that I apply myself in but I definitely wasn't like that as a young man probably until I started to gain physical stature by the time I was maybe second year at university I was a lot more confident in terms of how I looked physically the habits and behaviors that were going on alongside that sort of reinforced that identity as well so as a kid I was I was definitely not like the cool kid at school or the popular kid or the most academic kid, but I did develop as I got through school to the extent that I got into the University of Glasgow to do politics with unconditional. I was recognized as somebody who was physically quite fit by my by my by my peers in my last year at school in terms of people asking you, like, oh, how how are you so strong? Or how have you managed to 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 actually have like a semblance of a bicep when I was I was really not like you would never have thought that when I was in my in my younger days at school. And with that came an element of confidence overlapped into other areas, so that would come with maybe being more confident socially, getting getting invited to the parties in in the final year at school, and when you're in university. Whereas before that, I was I was not particularly social outside of like my my sporting endeavours, which were primarily rugby and golf when I was a when I was a kid.
1: So, do you think it was those lessons that taught you that if you increase in competency, then? it's almost like a, a positive feedback loop of becoming better at something then people recognizing that and then that driving you to do even better at that
0: I completely agree Zach I, I really think sometimes when we lack confidence we just haven't done the reps to get to almost earn that and I think you would be somebody that has an element of delusion or an element of like falsifying your reality if you just immediately assume you're good and confident and great at things before you've actually done them. So while I think every child should be confident and outgoing and speak to other children as a as a, as a healthy functioning child, sometimes you just haven't built that self assurance about your identity, who you are, what you do, what you're good at, what you can apply yourself in. And for, for a very long time now, particularly as an adult, I have really just relentlessly applied myself quite narrow and deep in the areas that I've decided to. And outside of that, I'm quite willing to be a white belt when it comes to learning and understanding from others, but in my areas of my domain, I'm extremely happy to hang with whoever, whoever, whoever I come up against or whoever I end up encountering.
1: The importance of niching down, I suppose, like having an awareness of the broader picture, but really uh, leaning into your particular like t- temperament, like the 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 specialization that your temperament sort of lends itself to. You can. That with self awareness sooner on you can kind of identify that and go okay I'm really just going to refine that and refine that and as you've done with iterating in the podcast and going into your physical endeavors you've sort of realized that you've got that you've got that nice intersection there where you can sort of link those things together as you've mentioned the office athlete its transferable skills but it's it's the office athlete which is the niche you know if you you can specialize in being fantastic and driven in your career and sales and insurance you can specialize in being like a bodybuilder but the intersection with that and then podcasting is where you've found your your following that's why people I guess will tune in when you when you release a podcast I think Um, you're right
0: yeah I would would agree with that and I, I, I do think there's an overlap in terms of personality traits that enable you to be good at those things so an element of low levels of boredom with the same thing over and over again high levels of conscientiousness low levels of neuroticism as well so i'm not particularly volatile I'm, I'm pretty mellow and pretty measured and i can just go and go and go of course i experience highs and lows but not on like a on a radical um scale or a, a, there's not a huge delta between like my most happy and my most down and i definitely think that helps with the activities that i applied myself to where you do sometimes experience external factors which could move you along that spectrum and along that and 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 along that experience and maybe move you quite significantly but i think there are elements of my personality where i'm predisposed to be good at particular things but of course that comes with its downsides as well and you need to be hyper aware of them work on them where possible or just don't expose yourself to the elements where they're like super super bad so like while I do a podcast I am not like massively creative like I couldn't come up with the next type of podcast that was radically different from a conversation like this one but I can tell you what I can build a pretty good podcast that's similar to this where you ask questions of another individual you share your insights you bring it to life and you and you ask the questions that your audience want to know more about and you you employ good research in advance I'm very good at that but if you were like oh there's this new style of podcast where the host does a particular thing that's radically different I would never be the man that would come up with that it's just not in my makeup to be outrageously creative but I surround myself now and this is an interesting point Zach I surround myself now with people who are much more like that and I benefit off the back of that so people who maybe lack some of my traits but I dial into some of their more creative traits so you mentioned David I think David's much more outside the box than I am but then I've said to David I'm much more relentlessly consistent than him on the, the kind of bo- the boring stuff where you just do an episode every single week regardless of rain hail or shine your laptop breaks your your wi-fi is down your guest cancels last minute my sunday episode is still going up regardless so like we both bounce off each other and i definitely think surrounding yourself sometimes to fill in those weaknesses with people around you that can sometimes help you or like bring you on or spark some ideas for yourself and in my case it, it's been very helpful
1: i think uh whether it's temperament or whether it's different views on different topics we have to ensure that we don't rabbit hole too much and become too much in an echo chamber you know having that circle of people that can almost act as checks and balances on our weaknesses and our blind spots that we don't quite understand is is obviously very important on the topic of uh, personality and temperament you mentioned that you went into studying politics often people that study politics i mean i currently study a joint politics and economics uh, i'd I'd probably say that they're more disagreeable you know they have more to more to share more to be principled about and i mean for me personally it was probably because i'm interested in human behaviour and that search for truth and i mean if i if i'm honest it probably is also i like debating people and winning <laughs> uh, but what was it that led you to study politics at, at uni
0: I think sometimes when you look at your childhood and what you enjoyed during that period, it can sometimes be an indicator of what you might want to do in adulthood if you were completely free of all your shackles and all your social norms and all the pressures around you. And in my early to late teens, I wanted to be a journalist, in particular a sports journalist. And when I was playing rugby, my team would play on a Sunday as a junior team. And on the Saturday, the men's team would play in the first division in Scotland at an amateur level. And I would go and write the match report. And so I was maybe fifteen, sixteen when I was doing this, and of course you're starting to think about what am I going to do when I finish school. And in school I went to, which was uh, a, a public school, not 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 a not a private school. There was still a huge focus, though, on everyone that was remotely academically intelligent going to university. That was the funnel. That was where you were to go, and that was very much where I was due to go, just based on a relative level of intelligence and a, a pretty um, pretty keen um interest from my parents to push me academically and when i was in these press boxes writing match reports i was asking the other journalists in particular the ones that maybe wrote for actual newspapers rather than just the local paper and the and the rugby club website which i was doing oh what what should i study what should i what should i get involved in and almost all of them to a man and a woman in some occasions said to me that you should not do a journalism degree um, so there was a journalism degree at Strathclyde at the time, which is a, uh, the, the kind of second university in Glasgow. And a lot of people were obviously going to do that. But they were saying that if you do a journalism degree and things change, then you are almost stuck on that particular path. So they said, do if you, you do a a a, a, science, a a social science degree where you do a lot of writing and then you show your written ability. And then if you're still interested in journalism, you can do your journalism on the side through articles, websites, blogs, whatever, at that time it was probably even more limited, this is like 20, 2008, 2009, and that was what I did, I basically went to the University of Glasgow to do a, a politics degree with the intent of showing that my written skills were excellent in a domain where you're given huge amounts of information, you have to distill it down into an argument, but that I would pursue my journalistic passion on the side of it and write newsletters and match reports and interviews on the side to build up a portfolio so when I finished I I could get a job at university or or sorry a a newspaper afterwards but funnily enough and thankfully I I chose politics in my I think it would have been my fourth or fifth week at university in uh, late 2010 the Glasgow Herald which is the biggest kind of newspaper in, in Scotland made like 50, 60% 50, 60% of its staff redundant and pretty much went just with freelancers. Now, the the printing press at that time was declining. If we look at 2023 when we're recording this, it's pretty much entirely dead in terms of actual staff within newspapers who consistently write. Most of the time, they've got columnists that show up one or two days a week who are either celebrities or or, or, or well-established writers or authors it's not really a career in the same way it was then so I'm quite glad I made the choice to do a politics degree and show that I could take in this vast amount of information right right clearly articulate my ideas rather than maybe just specializing in in journalism
1: but you almost found a way back into not journalism on a, a particular subject but you are in being a podcast host creating content off the base of stories and repurposing and publishing and I guess that creative element to you is still having that that outlet with politics then so it wasn't something that you were particularly passionate about aside from having a an interest in the cross- like relatable skills or was there a a little uh politician inside of you when you were
0: <laughs> yeah there was that de- there was definitely a political edge to me i was very much raised to have political conversations with my with my dad at sunday dinner when we would sit down as a as a family and dad would talk about the weekly happenings i would be able to reel off who was in the in the cabinet who was in the shadow cabinet we would work backwards and talk about who were the prime ministers from clement Attlee <laughs> onwards or from from neville Chamberl- chamberlain onwards in order and like why did they lose their premiership and who got in afterwards and why did labor win this election and why did the conservatives win this election so there was a lot of political chat that was really interesting and that's why it was politics rather than say history or psychology or philosophy or or another social science I was very much interested in the political side of things and I think the early years of my degree it's actually a four-year degree in Scotland I end up with a master's from Glasgow University just based on it being a Russell Group institution you actually get a an MA rather than a BA at the end which is great but the initial years were so broad and so many different areas of politics it wasn't in the same way where you weren't really talking about British politics or or like the ins and outs of the the, the electoral system or when you did talk about it it was in such minutiae I was like oh goodness me this is maybe a bit a bit much for me but in my final couple of years I actually really enjoyed some of the specialisms I got to go into because you were able to be more selective rather than just this broad cookie cutter where they're pushing 500 people through their first two years to basically assess where you're good enough to go for honours.
1: That's the thing, isn't it? It's, it's always the case with the university degrees, <clears throat> weighing up whether it's worth it to pursue in terms of wasting that time, but also how how fast can you specialise down in something that you're actually interested in, what you've actually chosen the degree for. And I suppose when you're given the space to do that research and uh, explore your intellectual curiosity, then then that's when it kind of comes into fruition. And also that gives you the space as well to consider what you want to go into post-grad, because... You're potentially learning from certain things, and then incorporating that into your beliefs, and then that's influencing what you go on to to want to choose. What was it that you were dabbling in when you were at university, thinking, okay, how am I going to relate this politics to a potential career in journalism, but not really sure what I was going to do? What what that kind of transition phase like for you?
0: I, uh, I I fell in love with journalism when I was at university. I definitely got distracted. um and it was only starting the podcast back or at least probably starting writing the longer captions on instagram in 2018 when it was actually like a good idea to do that on instagram just based on how the algorithm was back then we won't talk about the algo for too much though but it was definitely like i i definitely nullified that area of my interest from from very early on at university where i was just like you know what i'm just here to to get a degree and we'll see what happens um off off the back of it and i definitely moved away from the 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 journalistic flair and it was very much it became a bit of a means to an end and a bit of a box ticking exercise to get this degree I'm probably not going to be a journalist but I'm probably going to get the best degree that I can from a good university and it'll open doors to different graduate jobs with absolutely no idea what that might look like for, for 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 a good percentage of my time at university anyway
1: okay so what was it that you transitioned into work wise what was it if it wasn't journalism
0: I had two summer jobs when I was at university The first of them was as a sports coach at a kid's sports camp. So during the summer holidays, your parents drop you off at a sports camp between 8 8 a.m. and 4 p.m. or sometimes all the way through till 6 p.m. And you play tennis, rounders, basketball, football, rugby, cricket, whatever it is. I coached at one of those for each summer and each easter during during uh during the school holidays and that was fantastic and that was again from my kind of rugby background i did a lot of coaching when i was my final years at school for some of the younger kids and that was an area of of fun and interest but probably much more importantly for my career and moving forward i worked for a business called ensley insurance during the like august september and sometimes into october um working for them as a sales rep now ensley insurance is a student insurance company which specializes in contents insurance laptop insurance phone insurance like basically possessions insurance for students when they move away from home for the first time and i worked for them for the first time in 2011 before i went back for my second year and i instantly enjoyed the buzz of selling things it was the first time in my life that I'd ever sold anything. Yes, while I was at the sports camp, I was selling to the kids. We'll be doing this activity, so please behave and don't don't muck around. But I was actually selling physical or not physical, like an intangible product to students that they would need protection for their most important items and if they paid this premium then they would have that covered for any eventuality under the policy while they were, while they were out and about and living away from home and the uncertainty of first year halls for the first time and I just got a real buzz from it and I, I I actually had a bit of a knack for it and this was very much at an intersection where I had built a level of physical confidence in my appearance and how I stood and how I talked and how I held myself that I was then able to apply in a setting where I was getting paid money as a as a as a as a, as a decent um early rate that was the same as the sports camp because again it was it was slightly I don't want to say professional but it was slightly like higher than stacking shelves for example and you had to have a level of um, trustworthiness for the company to employ you but then you would get a bonus for each policy you sold as well and I was like, oh, this is a bit of me. Like I can get paid my early rate that's similar to what I get paid at the sports camp, which which is pretty good money. And I, I managed to, to shovel some of that away and, and save it. But I can also earn more on top when I perform well. And that just set off a lot of things in my mind where like, if I can be good at this job, I can earn more money. And I also get the fulfillment of like closing the deal and the excitement of that too, which was, I don't want to say like a drug, but it was very, like very stimulating indeed for me
1: suppose that as we were speaking about uh, i don't actually know was it off air or at the beginning of the podcast but or at the beginning of this call when we were talking about that that n- need for a, a standard or a judgment from which to look at yourself compare yourself not only against your peers but also that that kind of okay if you achieve this particular task you get a bonus and if you can do it better than other people you'll do better than other people and you can kind of scale up and I suppose these are where the parallels are emerging between the work that you're putting into your physical health and the routines there and and really driving yourself upwards. And also then stepping into this career where if you put in more work than other people, and I'm not always going to, you're not always going to compare it against others, but also against your previous self. But then you can take that then then, and step up, which I think it's oftentimes we're not reminded of that enough. And I think that causes a lot of problems because we don't know where we stand with regards to those standards in work practices. And I think having that is obviously going to fuel your particular temperament in in the way that we spoke about earlier with being particularly hardworking and stuff. Um in doing the the research for this podcast, I, I heard you say somewhere else that you, you really thrived in that environment led by kind of the data and the statistics and that the numbers don't lie. <laughs> when you're trying to put a deal on and someone you make the sale it's a big sale and of course then that's an objective good measure of what you've been doing but where was room for then the sort of understanding and ethical side in that time of your life or were you purely driven by the sort of harsh sort of self-judgment of just continually trying to get better and better at this thing of of selling insurance
0: yeah that's that's a really interesting question I think um the company that I worked for while it was heavily sales focused and target focused in each event that you went to in that in that area when it was face to face, um back in back in those days, you were incentivized to sell really well. But Ensley was like very much founded on being like student-led um and all our sales tactics, while of course there was an element of like persuasion and matching and tonality and all these things that I employ now in my corporate career. And I employ when I actually teach others within different organizations to, to sell better as well. There was a fundamentally underneath it was, it was needs based and it was consultative. So while you were an 18 year old student, Zach, that I was, I was talking to about what have you brought with you to university? What do you really care about? What's your budget like to replace these things? If the worst did happen, like how much, like how much student loans you have and all that kind of stuff, like to understand your situation of course I was applying one or two or three quite narrow solutions I wasn't applying solutions that just weren't relevant to you at all and I wasn't like necessarily forcing it on you and like nowadays in the, in the world of sales that I employ it was it was something that I was taught then and I still apply it now even to the size of the deal that I operate on but the, the kind of rule three when it comes to objections if somebody objects three times walk away like it, it's it's not going to happen like great british politeness goes a long way where you object a couple of times and it's meaningful sometimes somebody will be like actually like i actually think you've got a point but if you go beyond that you wear thin on the kind of level of politeness that somebody's willing to have with you and you you then become the pushy sales dickhead that nobody really wants to wants to be so from a like a, a morals and a virtuous perspective I worked for a company that was led by, of course, profit, but more so from like meeting the needs of students, particularly when they go into a chaotic environment for the first time. And this was something I was talking to a colleague about in work today, actually. When you're selling something, one of the number one prerequisites to make you good at that is that you're happy with the product you're selling. So you understand it, you appreciate it, you know that it works. If you're not, then you're really going to be uncomfortable like putting yourself forward and pushing past any sort of micro pushback that you get from a potential client
1: I think I've found that uh, on a very on a much smaller level and I've worked as a salesman a t-boy in a bike shop trying to sell bikes and bike related equipment is I struggled to let go of my personal bias if I didn't agree with something that I was trying to sell with someone or I always would be too agreeable and put myself in the customer's shoes and give away too many discounts or to being too kind of lenient with that in terms of your own relationship like with yourself, so when you're driving for these sales and you're you're kind of looking at yourself in the mirror as like I'm I'm trying to do better and I'm trying to push for more more a more aesthetic physique or a a, a bigger bonus or a higher sale as you're kind of pursuing this career. Where was that balance between being harsh and also being graceful?
0: That's a really Challenging question to answer, and more challenging than the one that I attempted to answer there, I suppose. And I think that's where you were hinting towards the whole time. I think, I think my self talk largely has always been erring on the side of work harder, do more, push on, and that comes from my my upbringing and the people I am surrounded by, and the content I've consumed online, and the kind of person and self image that I've created for myself. I think my self-talk, you're going to have to fast forward quite significantly, probably to early 2020 to look at when I was much more dialed into how I speak to myself outside of um, the the aspirational self and the aspirational identity I've created as Colin Campbell. And it's weird to talk about yourself in third person, but it definitely helps your self-awareness sometimes. But I started journaling in probably March 2020, I'd actually, um, I'd ended the relationship in january 2020 um with with my girlfriend at the time and my self-talk afterwards was pretty brutal to be honest because i'd ended the relationship i'd i hadn't hurt somebody in terms of doing anything bad but i just i just didn't like them the way that they liked me and i didn't see a future for it so i pulled the plug and that talk that i was giving myself in terms of like You're such a bad guy, you you, you've hurt somebody, this is terrible, you like you're you're incompatible with people because of how hard working you are, how driven you are, and some of the things that you're focusing on. And started to beat myself up quite a lot. And I also realized that when I was when I started trying journal with like a blank page, I was like, oh my God, some of the stuff I'm writing is like really self-critical about aspects of my personality without recognizing that there's maybe an upside to them, particularly an upside that people had told me about, including people I dated before they liked being around. Those elements of my personality in terms of bringing them on and supporting them and being like uh, a really powerful figure for them to to, to work alongside rather than like dominating self that I was maybe talking about myself as in a, in a, in a post-breakup mindset. And when I started to journal using the six minute diary where it had really clear prompts both in the morning and in the evening, it was much clearer for me to articulate what the best version of me would be, what a good day would look like what a successful good deed was during that day what are the things i'm grateful for what are the things i recognize about myself that i can improve on and the language was how will i improve rather than what do i not like about myself and what was terrible that's that it was it was very important to reframe those so my self-talk i would say throughout most of my life has been or or most of my life when i've been like in the kind of space where i've been trying to self-develop and improve and build a body and build a business uh, build a career it's been quite relentless, but now I've, I've, I've not, I've not leveled it off to an extent where I've lost my edge. But I'm much more compassionate with myself in the morning and in the evening when I'm checking in on how I'm shaped. And I think when you do it in those periods of time in particular, you are without any other input. So the phone, the music, the podcast, the conversations, you are with yourself, your pen and paper in your bed, and you just have to empty what's in your mind. And I think those either, they, they bookmark your day. So they bookend your day, sorry. So you start your day with your intentions and how you see yourself and you end your day with how the day went, your intentions, the ideas to improve and what you want to achieve in the in the future as well. And that has massively helped me in being a little bit less harsh on myself because sometimes I'll get to the end of the day's like I'll write down all these things that I've done that were positive for myself and for others around me. And you're kind of like, oh, well, actually I'm not this relentless robot box ticking animal that maybe some people might think I am and I'm not selfish. Like I, I am willing to, to, to try and bring others up, up, up alongside me. I'm a big believer in a rising tide raises all ships.
1: I want to dwell on this point just just a little bit more, and just think about like from your perspective. You know, we've spoken about the how compassionate you are with yourself uh, in in the beginning, of the even at the beginning of the day, and at the end of the day. But then when it's time to go, it's time to go, and and kind of being able to switch on and off and distinguish between the two and and sort of strike that balance speaking more broadly especially as i know you're you're th- politically minded and you're probably looking at kind of current culture what do you think is the general trend now with people where you see them going in a particular direction and what would be your recommendation to to what you see so like if for example if if someone is trying to strike this balance between being too compassionate or too judgmental how would you how would you do so
0: do you not think the vast majority of people are probably a little bit too compassionate with themselves at the moment they give themselves too many excuses they give themselves a lot of buys and and leeway in terms of whether that's physically with the training or with their with their diet and the things they put in their body or with the level of effort they put in as well like the whole diet starts monday crowd or oh i was too busy to train or that won't fit within my lifestyle or oh i'm not too fussed about what's happening at work at the moment i'll just coast like i think that's more prevalent now than the type of personality that i've got where i can be quite hard on myself and i do think people that are easy on themselves can be hard on themselves in other moments to an extent that's like wildly varying so we've got this we talked about a spectrum earlier where i'm quite narrow within the spectrum in terms of how i react to things but I think some people can be super easy on themselves for like large percentages. And then when they realize the damage that that's been doing to themselves, they, 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 they take on this level of personal responsibility, albeit not personal responsibility, like almost like personal disappointment that is so colossal. And they, in, when they come to realize that it's, it's largely their own fault to some extent where, where, where they've ended up, that's one of the problems when you have this conversation is that you do need to caveat that lots of people have different circumstances and there's always things that come up. But when you're having a a podcast, you can't afford to be uh, nuanced about every single side of things. So I'm talking in general. I think I look at the population, particularly in the UK in the Western world where we are relatively comfortable and the element of our struggle that we're exposed to is a fraction of that, which we're exposed to is in in, in our ancestral periods. I think we have quite an easy life. I think we're probably too soft on ourselves, too easy on ourselves and then when we do swing to be hard on ourselves, we can be so hard on ourselves that our mental health tanks that we we speak to each other, ourselves in an absolutely terrible way. But it's probably been from a place of giving ourselves far too much leeway, far too much rope, and we actually end up almost hanging ourselves. And that's definitely not a, a reference to the, the, the large number of male suicides. But I think it could be linked to how upset men get nowadays because they've lived this life of relative comfort and mediocrity. And then when it comes into start realisation, they feel very down and very troubled by it indeed.
1: I really love the way that you've very succinctly summed up. What I actually, I've, I've struggled to try and conceptualise is, is I've seen a lot of people where they they are perhaps too easy on themselves and then, as you say, swing too far into the other direction and then become too critical of themselves. And I think, obviously, the the solution to that is try and have more of a balance and think consciously about that day to day so that you can you can strike that balance but yeah doing the difficult thing in in the short term and and also appreciating the immense privilege that we all have living in the west where we're recording over an internet here after this podcast I'm going to go and cook some food that I bought from a supermarket and I've got a roof under my head like all of these things are immense privileges that have lulled us into this false sense of I don't need to make any progress. I'm good as I am. I can just consume, consume, consume. I mean, look where that's getting us with, uh, with the amount of trouble that we're having to kind of make sense of that all now um, without getting too much into detail. Um, and one of the points I've, I've written down here, I, d- I don't want to read it word for word, but it is something that I wanted to kind of pick up on. Speaking about this thing about doing the doing the difficult things deliberately, that sort of idea of delayed gratification, I think the, the temperament that is required uh, that you... I would say, possess to work in insurance as you have done with that kind of strategic, logical mind. I mean, when you pay for insurance, you're essentially doing the uncomfortable thing consistently over time to bet against external shocks in the long run, because you're ben- you're basically saying my laptop might not break, but I'll pay £10 a month just in case it breaks. I'll be prepared and the insurance will come in. It's almost like, you know, you go to the gym, you do prehab so you do your your movements so that if you fall over or if you have a crash or if something happens to you externally in the future you'll be better prepared and that of course as you'll be in this self-development space you'll recognize that that also does apply mentally as well you've touched on journaling but building a resilient mind not only through physical training but also self-reflection and kind of working those things out means that when we are faced with external shocks because at the end of the day life can be pretty challenging you know we're going to uh, go through personal difficulty is going to be laid off we're going to be potentially lose family members and all these things are going to be happening so <clears throat> the lifestyle that you've described as you've built up with these habits in the same way as you're working insurance i think i just i i see parallels there between between how that all sort of makes sense for your lifestyle um, and i wanted to touch on that external shock that did come uh, for you eventually you did a solo podcast on it you referenced it uh, to me, before we recorded, so I did go and listen and, and make a few notes. But take us through the the journey into what that was like, because you know you've described that environment you are in, and then suddenly it was all sort of taken away from you.
0: It's been a while since I've talked about this story. Probably a podcast I did, um, like that solo podcast was recorded May twenty twenty, so a long time ago. And I've been asked about it on a few different podcasts since, but not not for a little while, Zach. So to to to, to, to bring everyone up to speed, I had been working in the insurance industry post-university for four and a half years. I'd built up a really good career. I actually ended up getting a graduate job with the Endsley Insurance, who had worked my way through university as a part-time temp. And I'd really grown. But I was looking for the next step in terms of size of policy to work on, in terms of the premium that was uh, involved, in terms of the type of like risk that was insured and the kind of size and scale of it. Because ultimately, progress is happiness a lot of the time. And to to get to where I wanted to get to financially, but also in terms of fulfillment and excitement and purpose, you just wanted something bigger. So I made the move across to uh, another an, an insurer that was in the commercial space. And it just meant that it was things I was going to involve the larger stuff, basically. About I would say between I think it was t- twelve weeks into my ro- my role there, we were called in on a Friday uh, after a Friday morning and told by the directors who ran the Scottish branch of the business that an American hedge fund had purchased the business and had decided that the UK operation would no longer be required based on how they were going to manage it moving forward, and it would mean redundancies for every single member of staff in the uk across the five different offices that they had now i had obviously done my due diligence in advance for the business that i was moving to in terms of like how successful is it how well is it doing how well are the staff paid are they happy but of course you don't really know the things that are going on behind the scenes when it comes to these global companies where people are buying selling wheeling and dealing and ultimately making decisions from thousands of miles away that will impact the people that um, they the, they are making decisions about because at the end of the day, you are just a number or a a name on a balance sheet or on a or a, or a, or on a staff rota. And in that moment, obviously, I'd moved from somewhere where I was very much seen as the coming thing, and I was very popular, and I was very settled, and I was well paid, and I was well looked after. I'd made the move to obviously try and level things up and go forward and push, and for the you to then get that level of punch in the face when you were only just in the door was obviously quite unsettling. But to watch the reaction of people around me probably helped how I reacted. A lot of people were crying. A lot of people were upset. A lot of people were in despair immediately. And to the extent that the directors were like, we've got a few things we need to sort out. Obviously, from a, a regulatory perspective, you'll go through like a full process, but it's very much expected that everyone will be made redundant. Um, here's the company credit card. You can all go to go to the bar. And I remember walking outside and one of, the, one of my colleagues have, who had kind of got most close with a, a guy a similar age, he was like, oh, I don't smoke, but I really could go a fag just now. And I was thinking, oh, right, okay, if that's your copism, okay, I'll, I'll come with you. So I went and walked with him, he had a cigarette, and we then met the others at the bar. And I remember being like, give me, give me a couple of minutes to this chap as he was going into the bar and uh and to meet to meet the others and i phoned the recruiter that had placed me at the insurer that i was at and sh- she'd found me this job she got me the interview she put forward my cv and then from there it's it's up to yourself to to go and get the job and i just said some really bad news has happened you're going to be hearing about it from the wider insurance market anyway so i'm not breaking any any confidentiality here but you're going to need to start to get me some more interviews again and we're going to need to go again and she was like okay well you need to update your cv with the the 12 weeks experience that you've got and maybe give some background new cvs to what's happened so it, it doesn't just look like oh he's he's moved there and it's gone wrong and it's been a disaster and uh and you can get back in touch so i immediately wanted from like a a control perspective from a action taker perspective from a resilience perspective to do everything that was in my power to move forward so what I did is I obviously went home that night got got my CV together sent it to her I went to the gym and trained because I knew that was a place where I could maybe get away from the headspace I spoke to my my mom my dad my uh, my brother and my girl my, my girlfriend at the time and just like recounted that I I genuinely I'm not that worried because I feel like I'm high enough value particularly I've just been through a recruitment process I felt quite settled but also like you just need to know your worth and do everything that you can to control to get yourself in a position where I can get another job as soon as possible and while I was young and I felt talented and I felt like I was a valuable asset there was obviously going to be a chance I might not get immediate work that wasn't the case I managed to end up in it and a really good job at the the world's biggest insurance broker off the back of it. So actually almost a step up in terms of where I ended up. But it was all about that reaction period where I just felt like the last thing I wanted to do was go and drown my sorrows with these other people, who many of them are excellent professionals, but they've been rocked by this news and they couldn't see the wood for the trees that this short-term upset and grief and whatever else Sometimes people need that and I completely understand that. But I'm not I'm not wired in a way that would allow me to wallow in my own self pity during that period. And the only thing that made me feel better was i'm going to do something about it something even if it's futile even if it's just sending my cv my updated cv to this lady at least i can take some form of action to move forward to the next step one of the other things that i did and it wasn't necessarily just from a point of distraction but it was from a point of focus because i was going to have this redundancy period where you basically were were were, were paid and filled was i booked a, a a men's physique photo shoot um where it gave me a focus to be like right you can diet as hard as you can for the next however many weeks, and then you'll have a photo shoot at the end of it. So I think I gave myself like eight weeks. I, like for those that don't know me, I, I normally stay within striking distance of like the most frighteningly leading condition possible, and I I, I cut around like a, a fairly low body fat anyway. But everyone that has ever dieted to the most extreme points or done a done a show or, or shoot of some sort knows that the final weeks are the hardest because your body fat is so low, your calories are low, your expenditure is so high. So I was like, you know what? I've never really pushed it as far as that and, I, and documented it other than like when I've been going on holiday to Ibiza or something like that and wanted to turn up Shredded. But I really, really wanted to have this focus while I was doing my job search as something alongside it because I wasn't going into an office because there was no, no work to do. So I was like, right, okay, I'll just really push myself with this particular domain as well. And again, now I'm almost like reviewing it and talking about it again. It was just another way for me to be like, what can I control? I can control how I look. How I train, how I eat, my activity, my sleep, my recovery, and I can control how I feel in this job search. In terms of I'm, I'm working towards something, I'm not going, I'm not going soft. I'm not letting myself wallow in self pity and just coast along until the job comes along. I'm gonna go and get it. And I appreciate some people be like, oh, it's a bit, it's a bit psycho, a bit heartless. Like, why didn't you just like, like have a pint with your 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 your, your colleagues in the, and and sit with them? I went and sat with them. I just had a Diet Coke because I was, I, was, I was thinking. I couldn't stop thinking about what I'm going to do next. I didn't want to think about, oh, this is really sad. And I did uh, like console everyone around me because that was the right thing to do. That was the masculine, positive role model that you could be, even though I was one of the junior people in the office. And I truly believe that that experience was quite funny to test myself and test my resilience because I have lived a relatively sheltered life. I'm from a middle-class background in a lovely suburb just outside Glasgow. I come from a a two-parent family where we've been very settled, very loving, very well brought up. But when you do come up against hard things, the things that you've done in your life to prepare yourself and be a well-adjusted, strong person, well, they kind of bounce off you a little bit. And touch wood that's one of the hardest things that i've been exposed to and a lot of people one of their biggest fears is losing a job and being financially destitute i stood up quite well to that and i want to make sure that any future challenges that come my way that are probably going to be much more challenging than that and could be far more upsetting and testing that i'm relatively ready for it if i can be zach i think
1: that example of a story very much integrates a lot of the conversation that we've had prior to it i think it's kind of the not not it doesn't all come to a head at once that's a bit too dramatic but i think it illustrates quite clearly everything that we were speaking about before about doing taking the due diligence to improve your habits and build yourself up as a person gradually so that when the external shock comes you're ready and i think even like reflecting on my own life all of the biggest the biggest most rapid improvement in my self-development have always come after I mean you know you don't want to say the cliche but like after a breakup for example you're suddenly fueled to hit the gym you know there's all those memes about the the character arc and fighting against demons in the gym breakups whatever, but... make
0: bodybuilders yeah
1: yeah <laughs> um yeah I might need to get my heart broken a few more times then if I want to make make stage like you did um but I think I think it's a a great thing to prepare for that, but also it's a it's an odd thing to kind of wish for that to happen. I remember I remember always thinking like, I know I've built a strong mind, and I want and I want some kind of external shock just to prove to people that like that low situation doesn't have to stay low. You don't have to stay a victim. It is possible to turn things around. And of course, you mentioned the, the nuance earlier on in the podcast of there are caveats. There are different contexts where we have to again, find that balance between that harsh judgment and turning things around and also being compassionate in the moment. But I think your story there illustrates very much the importance of perspective over circumstances and using challenges as a springboard towards a higher, like a higher level than you were. It's all
0: relative that, as well. It's it, it, it's all relative. So the pressure on me at that point was the largest it's ever been. I just bought a property in the January I'd moved job in the March. I'd been made redundant in the May. That is financially the most pressure I've ever been under in terms of, oh wow, what happens if I don't replace my salary to the same extent? Like Maybe I won't be able to be as comfortable as I have been. But you might end up with somebody that is in a much worse situation. Maybe they just bought a property or just had a child as well. So my situation was easier than some of my colleagues that I was sitting alongside that were going through the same situation. But I just knew that I could react in the best possible way that Colin could rather than comparing myself to how others reacted. I just aim to try and be the most resilient and strong version of myself for myself, but also my family because there's a massive pressure. Like the ripple effect, something that's not spoken about often enough. Like sometimes when you go through an element of, and I don't want to use the term trauma because I'm not traumatized by experience, but an element of challenge or difficulty, you don't realize how much the people around you who really care about you can be affected as well. And I recently interviewed a, a gentleman called Sue Arman. And so it was diagnosed with cancer at the age of sixteen. And he he was visibly moved, but not to the same extent his mum and dad were, because he he knew he was like, I've looked at the numbers, like, I know I'm gonna have this length of chemo, I know I'm gonna be in a bit of a, a bit of a challenging situation. And he's come out of it and he speaks so calmly about it. He actually at the last at the, at the last few months of his his um his treatment when he kind of felt like, Oh, I think I'm gonna go into remission well of course still being like Absolutely forward in terms of energy levels for like two weeks at a time. Every uh, every time he'd, he he did his he did his chemotherapy, he started to build what has now become like a seven figure online business in the in the uh, in the esports and gaming industry, and that for me is remarkable because I haven't been tested to that level and I wasn't 16 when it happened to me. I think I was 26. So there's there's always people that you compare yourself to and think about in terms of like how rock solid their mindset is and how much harder their challenges that were that they faced. But all that we can do is prepare ourselves to be as well well uh aligned and powerful and strong as we can be when the challenge does come regardless of how hard that challenge is whether it's a cancer diagnosis at the age of 16 and potentially terminal all the way through to 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 to, to losing a job or even on a smaller scale like having a having a breakup or something like that it could be anything
1: look forward to unpacking that story myself i'm recording with sir on saturday so amazing uh yeah hopefully um can live up to the incredible job i'm sure you did i need to listen to your your episode shortly as well um but one of the topics that I wanted to pick up off on, off the back of that it's a quote I saw from a random John Peterson clip from like a lecture he did literally last week and it was like you can't take something seriously if the consequences aren't serious and that quote sprung to mind when you were mentioning the varying severity of the consequences of not finding a job in that scenario and it also ties into the discussion we had earlier on how we can have too much comfort and that leads us to take inaction because there is that lack of consequence and so if the if there aren't serious consequences for inaction or if there aren't serious consequences for not getting a job then you won't take the job application process seriously like it's it's a it's a level it's a level game and so perhaps even in uh, Suhit's situation as you've um, alluded to there it's almost because there are he's in a very serious scenario therefore he's taken it seriously afterwards to rebounce from that and go and, and be even more driven so it kind of fuels that if you can have the right mindset towards it so i don't know i think i i just saw that all tied together so i had to uh <laughs> had to verbalize it on the, on the spot there um and i, I suppose it it, t- it does tie in quite naturally to another large thing that happened in all of our lives three years ago around the same time as you started this podcast but we were talking about how big setbacks can really affect an individual and how you kind of bounce back from that so how did the whole lockdown affect your mindset and given everything we've we've spoken about about you know setbacks and resilience what were your thoughts on it all?
0: I started the podcast in like during the first lockdown so i was recording during the march I, th- I think i think for argument's sake let's say lockdown was called on the 16th of march um for, from memory and we ended up in a situation where it was initially like i think like a, a six weeks i think everyone everyone spoke about in those first 10 weeks i was recording as many podcasts that i could i was training in my living room uh, with a, a dumbbell and some some uh, a kettlebell and some bands that i'd got and I very much just looked at it as very much, as much as possible, business as normal, just on a different domain or a different venue. So my training was in my living room rather than the gym. My work was in the house rather than the office, albeit I had been a field-based, home-based worker for the four and a half years before I moved to the insurer that went, uh, went bust. Or, sorry, got bought over. Um, it It was... <sighs> it was a challenging period and socially you didn't have the opportunity to break up your day in that way and then those initial 10 weeks I very much was pretty much adhering to the guidance albeit I refused to not go out more than once a day for my walk because at that point I was like okay I disagree with that uh, quite quite strongly Um, I went
1: for a run with my dog as his exercise and then a bike ride for mine and you know my parents were a bit skeptical about that but being outside on your own you know it's not as long as you're not affecting other people yeah i agree
0: exactly so even at that point i was kind of seeing some holes in in the guidance but um wasn't pushing back particularly so yeah i, th- I thought it was a challenging period and you were you locked in but i was quite enjoying what i how i was spending my time albeit i wasn't able to go to the gym and see people i was still training and moving my body and feeling good and working relatively hard I wasn't placed on furlough I think it would have been a very different conversation if somebody like me was placed on furlough because I'm somebody that really responds quite well to routine and the purpose of feeling like I'm, I'm, I'm really doing something and while the podcast was, was starting at that stage it wasn't of a, uh, a level where it required the level of input that it does now where if somebody was like oh Colin you're you're gonna get paid 80 percent of your salary and you can just do the podcast full-time for for a few weeks until this uh this virus is under control but okay cool like I could like I could definitely fill that time but at that stage it was still relatively relatively new so there was like uh, it was very much just uh the basics that were happening but no it was it was a it was an initially challenging period in terms of what was happening globally but individually I felt okay in those in those early stages I just um like did all the things that i normally do but just on a slightly different scale albeit you do lose some of your identity in terms i was the guy that would go to meetings in a suit i would go to the office i would close deals i would have conversations with finance directors and managing directors at their office i would then spark my white monster and drive to the gym and train hard and take photos for instagram and uh, talk to my story about um how i was fitting all into my day and the food that i was eating and the training that i was doing and the things that i was doing it, yeah there was a, an element of oh you've lost a little bit of that
1: but you sharing through that process as well is a little bit of the rising tide i suppose like even even in the struggle if you're able to demonstrate to people how you're able to keep your routine together and trying to get things going um even as things did then reopen hopefully then that encourages other people as they're watching you do those things too Reengaged with those things too
0: correct like I, I was able to to share what i was up to throughout the time and hopefully it inspired people to to do the to do the things that i was doing on on a different on a, on on whatever scale was relevant to them so maybe they weren't training with a, a dumbbell and kettlebell and bands and the maybe they were just doing body weight stuff but at least they were trying to do that and check in and i was trying to share as many tips as possible at that time in terms of how to how to keep your head straight because there was a level of worry and anxiety largely caused by what we were seeing on the in in, in the media about what was out there and what might be happening to to ourselves our friends and our families in the in, in the coming weeks if we weren't particularly careful and I think keeping your your head on and ticking your own boxes was was vital during that period and something I certainly benefited from doing and hopefully others who saw that that's what I was doing would have it, it, even one or two people if, if, if they decided oh well he's still managing to tick the main boxes he cares about I'll try and do the same then that's fantastic.
1: Especially as we kind of re like connected closer with the people that we follow online i think it did become a, a level of accountability we had run 5k and donate 5k we had all these like water drinking challenges and obviously people kind of engaged um through that medium i think in the, in the short to medium term you can see something like that as an opportunity where maybe for the summer of 2020 things are slightly disrupted but you can sort of again knuckle down and go this is something that I can drive head first, come out the other side, ahead of all these other people, you know, you you can become competitive in that domain as well. But then it kind of continues to linger, continues to last. And you don't strike me as someone who would particularly, um, what would you say, like you, your sort of temperament of like your, your love for routine and like hitting the gym and all these meetings and stuff when all these disruptions are happening. And as you're saying, it's, it's been, communicated to us as like this really necessary thing to keep locking down what well, did your thoughts sort of like progress on that i mean i know we've we've spoken in the dms a little bit about the sort of lockdowns and stuff
0: i was um extremely disagreeable pretty early on when it came to things like masks social distancing exercise particularly outdoor exercise and started to push back pretty hard in terms of quite openly not adhering on my on my Instagram to some extent as much as I could particularly the employer that I had at that time was probably a little bit more strict than the one that I have now so um touch wood anyway and I yeah I was training at a garage gym and I was showing that I was doing that with a couple of different friends I was having friends over to watch the football games that were being played behind closed doors but being shown on on tv and we were coming over for food and and enjoying that and i was i was i was fine with people seeing that as well i was i was dating quite a lot as well because like i i'd said i was recently single in the in the january um and i started to do all the all the walking dates that everyone got, got themselves involved to but obviously those lead to lead to dates in your house for having dinner and having somebody over and i was completely fine and calm about that because I quite quickly realized that the virus itself was largely benign for the vast majority of people. And I guess I was fortunate in the sources I was following online. The ones that hadn't been choked out and censored were sharing some of the data that reassured me that it wasn't um as serious as as we were maybe being led to believe, particularly for people in my demographic. And I wasn't exposed to people that were high risk. Like the highest risk people I was exposed to were my parents and they were still very much following the the guidance and they lived in in, in, in a separate property from my, my brother and I so when I saw them we were still seeing them outside in the in the garden or in the garage and they were adhering to it and that made them happy at that point in time they have massive regrets about it now because they since had the virus itself and found it to be largely okay and maybe they were a bit tired or fluy for a couple of days much like when I, I first got the the first variation the kind of Wuhan flu in the, in November 2020 and I was a bit tired and groggy i did isolate i like like i think when you're ill you would stay inside anyway or you wouldn't meet other people anyway so like i followed the guidance in that sense but i was largely okay so at that point i was quite reassured that i don't necessarily think i need to adhere to the guidance to the letter so i lived my life as much as possible normally within obviously the constraints that certain things were closed that you legally just couldn't go to but yeah i was pushing back quite heavily and talking to people who either were like-minded or people who strongly disagreed with me and called me things like a granny killer for going to a garage gym um, on, on on Instagram. But at that point in time, I like my disagreeable and quite rational personality was seeing quite large holes in the narrative. And I think people listening to this in 2023 when we've been nodding along, but they might have been much more scared during the time when I was, or some of the others that I was associating with, were, I want to say breaking the rules to some extent because... I just felt those rules didn't have a, a time or place. And I'm somebody that has like quite quite a lot of respect for authority growing up as well. But I definitely feel my trust has been broken during that period with how it was enforced. And I think you only need to look at what was going on inside Downing Street in May 2020 in terms of parties and intimacy to show that the people in charge realized how, I don't want to say less serious, but how less threatening the situation was than they were publicly talking about and they wouldn't have acted in that way if they were massively putting their lives in danger to behave in that way in that in, in that shape or form so i do find that quite challenging that some people have like changed their tune on this but i'm glad some people have opened up their eyes and, and changed their tune to some extent because hopefully it means that people are ready when any future about uh, like attempt to uh, coerce the population or to be more authoritarian which i do have some fears over if that occurs maybe people will be more aware of the different tactics that were employed and I, like if you if we look at monkeypox people laughed at that this time thankfully because it just was not a serious credible credible threat but if people reacted in the same way they did to c19 then we might have ended up with more stringent measures around that particular virus as well as a as a means of securing more compliance in the population and ceding more control as an individual to uh, larger organizations.
1: I'm I'm glad you, you shared those thoughts because it, it's thoughts that I was thinking throughout the pandemic and I know I know I just wanted to briefly touch on this because it does tie quite nicely into the discussion on this sort of mass I don't want to say virtue signaling because people do really mean well. When when these people were kind of brought into the idea that it was super compassionate to not engage in like going to the gym or going for multiple Uh, runs a day or i don't know when when the university officers came knocking on our door saying there's more than six people in this place There's, there's a party going on it's like those aren't the environments where the danger is happening and in my view at the time was we need to vaccinate the elderly population but everyone else generally speaking obviously people can make their individual risk decisions but as someone who looks after themselves and their health that is my insurance policy against an external shock like this and i'm being those things are being taken away from me and it's not only in a in a contextual sense of what the lockdown was but also as we as you briefly touched on at the end there the broader i don't want to say political it's the in principle it's the principal point of of where do you draw the line with how much autonomy you give the the government over your sensibilities and your freedoms and that was certainly a political can of worms that was open during that time and I don't know I it just, it just I don't want to dwell on it too much but it's definitely something that ties in a lot of the kind of grace and compassion versus the objective truth and harsh reality kind of discussion that we've had because at the end of the day the government does have to make a, a net decision between whether we go slightly too far and maybe cause on a macro scale more or less death depending on what we do and there is that balance between ruining the lives of so many other people and the unintended consequences, which people don't talk about. But I, I've seen in my own personal life when uh, for example, my grandparents are reduced to that autonomy, they're not talking as much, and then out the other side, they're less socially apt, they're more paranoid, etc. So there are there is that whole equation and balance. But yeah, I'd say I'd probably sit with you on the on the spectrum there of taking things into your own control, using it as an opportunity and being a bit skeptical of having all your all your rights taken away from you certainly appreciate i appreciate i don't want to do uh too too much talking um rolling forward to today we've touched on it briefly a few times i'm sure it won't surprise many people but what does your current day-to-day routine sort of look like considering the kind of journey that you've you've been on
0: i in May 2021 I left the insurance industry after seven and a half years to move to a job where my first boss from the insurance industry had become the managing director of a furniture firm albeit selling furniture to the same demographic of client that I dealt with for a long time which is student accommodation and it was primarily driven again by this purpose piece where I was like I want to Work in a in a role where I feel like I'm having a, a big impact. I'm driving forward performance and metrics and impact and fiscally I'm being rewarded. I'm progressing and that had slowed down terribly in in my in, in my role at the time. I think C nineteen had a had a, had a factor to do with that because of the the sector being a little bit stymied. But I I moved and that became a full time field based role again. So I was working from home entirely. Albeit it pretty much had become that way off the back of the pandemic anyway, um, in terms of where my uh, where, where my last role had been. Um, and day to day, my role is very much work from home or I'm out at clients or site visits across the UK. My clients are pretty much Birmingham and up. We have two offices, one in London, one in Manchester. I'm much more often in the Manchester one because we have a showroom there where I physically do tours and show, uh, show, show clients the, the product that we're proposing for their development. And I have an awful lot of travel off the back of that. I say an awful lot because I think an awful just means it's a, it's a large amount, but it's not it's not awful in terms of the the actual um, connotations of that. But day to day, it does vary massively, uh, Zach. But primarily, I'm working at home and I am waking up early. I am hydrating i am journaling i'm stretching i'm listening to a podcast i'm going for a long walk i'm coming back i'm doing a little bit of podcast admin a little bit of instagram admin and then i'm just diving head first into the the day to day requirements of being an account director business development professional for 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 a for a growing business I am sometimes training at lunch, sometimes training after work, sometimes going a walk after work, sometimes going a walk at lunch, sometimes going to the golf, sometimes going to the football. Like I, 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 I love a, I don't love a varied life. That's not true at all, but I love a life where it does move around a little bit and I've had to be more adaptable. Whereas in the past I could have been quite rigid. Again, that's come from the diary in terms of like what I'm writing down and being willing to be open to experience while still having relative confines and discipline. But my day, my day varies. Massively, Zach, but I am always serving myself in terms of if you look at like the overall boxes that I tick. I am eating well. I am training hard. I am going walks. I am creating content. I am applying myself as hard as I can within the hours that I do allocate towards my my day job and trying to progress. And I am just trying to feel fulfillment. And of course, within that, I am trying to be social, trying to be a family man, trying to be a good brother to to, to my brother. I am trying to be a good friend to the people that I spend time with. I am trying to network and and speak to inspiring individuals. I am trying to listen to both preparatory podcasts for the ones i'm going to interview but also podcasts that allow me to level up as well with some of the some of the brightest and best minds in the in the world as well so it it does vary zach but all within a relative domain as we've talked about i like to go narrow and deep not wide and shallow
1: it's all about nailing the the non-negotiables and around that allowing space for creative flow and input and also like I guess the variance in the days of you as you've mentioned which i don't know i think <clears throat> a quote i really like from dan co is if you don't have a routine you'll be assigned one and assigning yourself a routine is not an easy process i mean it's been a lot a long process for you to kind of expand experimenting with different things seeing what works coming across journaling but i think struggling towards that and then having something which works sustainably excuse me <clears throat> is far better than just you know stumbling through life and seeing what pops up and acting spontaneously all the time but of course you do need to schedule those moments in because that's where sometimes the the best things can happen.
0: i believe so strongly that discipline equals freedom and if i've not been disciplined then i can't be free i can't be spontaneous and if i haven't ticked those main boxes i find it very difficult to allow myself enough rope and that's with somebody that's worked on trying to be more spontaneous and embrace that it just doesn't sit well with me. If I can't be present in the task or the activity that I'm doing because I've got other things that are left undone and I haven't done them, that for me is the only time I feel anxiety. I am not an anxious person particularly. I'm not a particularly nervous person. But those are the moments where that that feeling comes up. That feeling that I can like I can most closely compare to a level of anxiety or nervousness comes when there are things left undone that I said I would do and I'm unable to fully embrace the moments that I have decided to do at that point in time, and, that, and that's a terrible experience. So if that's going out for dinner with your friends, but knowing you've got a to-do list as long as your arm that you procrastinated on during the day, that for me, I'm like, that's all your fault, Colin. Why did you not just do the thing that you said you were going to do when you were going to do it? Why did you get distracted? Why did you end up scrolling Instagram or Voice note in your friend about the night out that you were going to have tonight because that was going to happen anyway. Just wait for it and do the thing before it and allow yourself to really embrace the the the, the evening. But again, that's an insight into how my how my head works sometimes, Zach.
1: And uh, I'm smiling because this is all this is all hitting too close to home, <laughs> and and I'm sure it it might well do for for some of the listeners too. I think that what you're describing is and correct me if I'm wrong is essentially the. The trust that you have with yourself and compromising the trust that you've worked so hard to build because through those discipline habits you know that if you say that you are going to do something and then you make that promise to yourself and you fulfill it you sort of build that self-confidence and self-trust but then when you start to compromise that you start to question and doubt whether any of the things that you you know you start to go oh am I ever going to achieve this thing because I've failed on all these other things where I couldn't back up what i said i was going to do so your identity
0: is is everything it really is and the actions that you take reinforce the identities and that's very much a, a james clearism from atomic atomic habits like the things that you say you're going to do when you do them that reinforces the type of person that you would like to be or you say you would like to be and if you don't do that then you have no real right to say like oh i'm a hard worker or i'm conscientious or like if i say i'm a podcaster i probably need to produce some good podcasts like it, it, if I say I'm a, oh, I'm a sales director for a multi million pound furniture business. Okay, well, I should probably sell some fucking furniture then, shouldn't I? And I should probably do, I should probably make the calls and do the emails and the presentations that that requires. And when you assign those kind of labels to yourself, doing things that back that up, just make you feel great, and it creates momentum, it creates routine, it creates habits, it creates all these things that need to happen for us to authentically and truly feel what we say that we are and that for me is is such an important value like feeling comfortable with who I've described myself as when you asked me to introduce myself office athlete who tries to pursue peak performance in 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 the domains that he applies himself in I don't hold myself up as a as a as a a karate champion because I've never done it I've never applied any effort towards it it would be ridiculous if I thought I was going to be able to do that in the same way that you see some people like oh I'm a I'm a loving father okay when was the last time you 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 really showed support and love for your kids because you see some people who are like maybe workaholics that say stuff like that and you think oh wow that's not great and I've had guests in the podcast who have said that they've gone through periods where they've had to be like oh I say I'm a family man but I'm really maybe I'm not living in alignment with those values and I think that's a very challenging thing to shine on yourself at times but equally a very important thing to do because then you can change it because you're like you're only one day away from making a change and starting to do things differently and, and moving towards this direction that you really want to move towards you just have to take the step away from where you were going that maybe wasn't what you wanted to do
1: taking action which is the hashtag you like to use on the, on all the posts on instagram regarding regarding your podcast we've spoken about it briefly you've had three years building up gradual success to the point where you are now and you mentioned their kind of contentious topics and being able to speak at work and all of these things. Are, and it's something that I anticipate I'm going to face in future, particularly if I pursue a, a career as a clinical psychologist. There are lots of things that you can and can't say that might be potentially, I don't know, cancerable or you've got to fit a certain line. So how do you strike the balance between articulating what you believe to be the truth but also doing it in a way that is sensitive to the potential repercussions of that
0: it's an extremely hard balance to strike and balance is something that i think a lot of people like particularly in the fitness community on instagram are like balance is bullshit like don't like don't look to be balanced but i think the term is perfect for this particular topic I think as much as possible, you just need to cover conversations that you feel compelled that you need to have. Now, during the the C nineteen stuff, while I was showing on my Instagram that I was pushing back and maybe not adhering strictly, I wasn't necessarily vocalizing that I think it's a I I think it's a sham. Like I wasn't I wasn't vocalizing that because I I actually I hadn't been able to articulate it perfectly at that point in time. I could say some things that I felt. But until something's really well enough formed, you shouldn't necessarily just throw it out there. I think that's when people increase the risk of cancellation or increase the risk of putting their foot in the mouth when they haven't quite thought through an idea well enough to post out to the public anyway. Have the conversation with a friend, work on how you articulate it, how you say it. Be open with your viewpoints with the people that really matter to you. in, And I hate this term, a safe space. Then at least you give yourself an opportunity to work on how you do that. And then if you want to unveil that to the public, fantastic. Equally, I had guests on, who I agreed with about some of the things that I find challenging in today's society. And while I didn't necessarily come out and say my viewpoint entirely... I asked questions which probed. I said, "Oh, I can see where you come from on that." In the same way that we we just we discussed C nineteen, and while I I went off on one in in, in some direction, you were saying, "Like oh, I I agree with large elements what you said in particular to this." I don't think you gave yourself enough rope there to to, to hang yourself and get yourself in any trouble. I, although I don't think that's a, a problem nowadays. I think most people now see it for what, for for largely what it was a, a massive overreach and overreaction to to what 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 was a problem, but what is what was an over-accentuated problem. I think when it comes to having potentially contentious topics and contentious uh, discussions, I think as much as possible, allow the guests to do the talking and to hold themselves up as an expert. And I think by you giving them a platform should not be a cancelable offense. Like you should be allowed to have pretty much anyone on your podcast and it not be something everyone would be like, oh my god, that's disgraceful. I saw a lot of people um, gave a Scottish podcast called James English, a lot of backlash for having Katie Hopkins on his podcast. Now, Katie Hopkins is a very divisive figure. She said some things which a lot of people disagree with. She said some things that you might agree with as well. And I think that's quite important to not necessarily allow yourself to completely cancel an individual based on one or two things that they said, or even 10 things that they've said, because they should still be allowed a voice unless they're doing what I would call hate speech or calling for or inciting violence. Then I think people should be allowed to explain their views as well. And this will be an interesting example from a political perspective. Around the time when I was going to university, it was actually my final year at school, the the BNP, the British National Party, were seeing a massive resurgence in the UK. And Nick Griffin was an extremely popular figure with A lot of people who ended up voting UKIP and for Brexit, but were not what the BNP were, which was largely a group of racists. So Nick Griffin was allowed to go on Question Time, and it was aired on a Thursday night to millions of people on the BBC, and his ideas were held up for scrutiny for all to see with another wider panel. And he was largely bodied and bullied and made to look ridiculous. And since then, the BNP has fallen into free fall to an extent where it, is, it, is, it has no political power in the UK of any means to speak about. Now, the lesson from that for me is that you exposed his ideas to debate, to discussion, and then subsequently to ridicule and dismissal. So if you have a real problem with somebody's views, Unless they're calling for genuine violence and like, like unspeakable things to happen, and verbalizing that, and and trying to incite that, I think they should be given a platform to discuss, and a, and somebody to push back and have a conversation and understand more and you might find there's some points that they make you are like okay i can see where that comes from but then there might be other points where it literally destroys them and that's fine that should be allowed and i think that's it that is the most healthy element of it equally i haven't had that many people on the podcast who i disagree with but i've had some people who maybe others would find contentious that i've allowed to have a platform and have a discussion and people who maybe disagreed with that person beforehand would have found elements of common ground with them while of course finding elements they disagree with or they found elements where they just really disagree with them fully but they've given themselves a chance to listen to that other viewpoint and be like you know what i gave him a try still not my cup of tea i think he's I, I think he's this and that and we and we move on from there but it's it's a very difficult balance to strike that but i think as a podcast host be guest led but once you've formulated some of the ideas and you feel like you're in a position where you can verbalize them and you don't won't get yourself in in too much trouble then speak forth and uh, don't bite your tongue.
1: I think that's essentially a commentary on the the importance of nuance is just being able to distinguish where someone says something correct even though the body of their thoughts may not be so correct or favourable and also the importance of throwing a terrible idea into the realm of good ideas to let it get beaten down because one of the quotes i saw somewhere was like you know you can take andrew tate off twitter but the idea and the philosophy that someone like that represents will just be filled by someone else that is equally as contentious and again someone like him or someone like i don't know someone else who's been cancelled from online donald trump i don't know they represent there's a reason why they've gained that notoriety for me you can kind of draw comparisons and I really do not want to go off on a tangent here but if you look at the reason why the Nazi party rose to fame wasn't just through Goebbels propaganda campaign it was because they they spoke something into existence which there was an underlying sort of tension within the people that were complicit in that it wasn't just that they were all being manipulated and I think we need to understand that the ideas and the people need to be able to speak rather than being cancelled so that the better people can come along and kind of rebuttal them and, and, and show them for, for who they are, I suppose. So Agreed. Yeah. It's something that I've increasingly been challenged by when I see this whole conversation on cancellation and deplatforming and trying to strike that balance because there are people that you know you can strongly disagree with that you really don't want to have a voice but at the end of the day it's a it's a damning statement on you if you can't rebuttal them with just better information and then you know if people are common sense and reasonable enough you'd hope that they would then open their eyes to that I suppose but that's our job as podcasters is to bring forth better ideas new ideas increase the the flow of valid knowledge and expertise and hopefully increase the the correct information and be a a part of the the correct team of of truth and and understanding um didn't mean for that to so well like kind of (laughs) bring bring the episode to a close but um before i finish where does the future lie for colin
0: I think I want to continue to apply myself in the domains that I really care about, and those domains might change over time. At the moment, that's the podcast, it's my day job, it's my fitness, it's my physique, it's my social life, it's my family, it's the activities that I choose to do in terms of watching my football team Rangers, it's playing golf on a on a on a on a summer morning or a summer evening. Applying myself in those domains as as much and as wholeheartedly as possible, and ensuring that I am progressing and feeling fulfillment and happiness and purpose when i'm doing that and not necessarily ever doing anything that completely on autopilot or being led by societal norms or what is deemed normal or acceptable one of the things we haven't spoken about in this on this podcast is that i'm a big advocate of elective sobriety and i i pretty much rarely drink alcohol in fact i didn't for almost a thousand days and i've since had it three four times two of those times being on holiday in dubai when i decided it was it, it was right one of those times being after a, a a physique photo shoot when i was like right okay i'm going to the after party for this with another 150 people who all completed the shoot as well so it kind of felt worthwhile so never allowing myself in the future to be uh swept along by herd mentality or group thinking and, and just following and, and doing things that i feel are out of alignment with who i truly want to be in the moment but also who i want to be as a as, as my future self as well so that's the plan zach and hopefully i can keep doing that
1: i mean we we didn't touch on it but i suppose it it was a implicit i don't know like from from the lifestyle that you've described i think the the pursuit and the resilience that you have lends itself to only having something like alcohol as a reward after doing the hard work the proper order of dopamine rather than just doing it and celebrating for no reason and
0: and and even even then some of my best celebrations have been stone cold sober because i haven't felt alcohol would add to the the occasion so i'm still going to be very selective like at the time of recording i haven't drank since i was in dubai in december 22 so what that's coming up for three months or something like that I'll probably drink in the summer when I go to Mallorca on holiday with my friends as well. But in advance of that, I can't really think of an occasion where I'm likely to want to partake in alcohol. So yeah, it's super, super selective. And there'll be some celebrations between between now and then as well, uh, but I'll probably be sober at them because I'll, I'll, I'll get enough stimulus from the, from the event, the people I'm with and the experience, then the, the, the need to add something else on top.
1: It's all about what you associate it with, I guess. And, um, I don't know if it was you or David that said this, but on the podcast that you three recorded in December, I remember a moment where David said, replace, oh, it was David, replace something on the Friday evening with something else fun or something so that that slot or whatever you're going to do is filled up. And for for you, it might be recording a podcast or, I mean, maybe it is going out and, and staying sober, but just not associating those vices that can lead us down a negative route with just purely feeling good because there's lots of other things that we can do yeah that was
0: a really fun podcast to 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 record and it's a style that I'm definitely continue to do more of I I do another roundtable version with a a chap called Chris Burns the Savage Scholar and my friend David Hatt who's a um the head fitness coach of MTN coaching and they're both such wise guys but it's quite a it's a nice way to kind of have maybe I would say every 20 to 25 episodes I have those guys on and have like a bit of a a roundtable and it brings something a bit a bit different to the to the audience's ears
1: it's a large reason why people are listening to podcasts isn't it it's because they they like to feel like they're part of a discussion and even if it's not providing any value or providing any miraculous story if you're just listening to a few blokes chat rubbish it's sometimes that can be quite a nice thing to kind of switch off to but yeah keep keep it up i, I absolutely love what you're doing and um i hope to someday be 170 episodes in and and garner the same successes as, as, as you've gone on to enjoy and i wish you all the best if people somehow haven't checked you out since seeing this title uh do the same as i always do at the end of the podcast where where can people find you
0: yes if uh, if they want to connect with me on instagram it's c o l dot cambro c-a-m-b-r-o or if you're on linkedin it's colin t campbell and wherever you're listening to this you'll be able to find cambro conversations which is my podcast so search for cambro conversations and and let me know that you came across after hearing me have this this great fun chat with uh with mr zach right here
1: thank you very much and yeah goes with my my recommendations as well so thank you for recording today really enjoyed it